Hello, welcome to Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs as named and our Patreon supporters. I'm Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs here talking with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. We are doing another team season preview episode today featuring Will Leach talking about the St. Louis Cardinals and Ranny Jazerly talking about the Kansas City Royals who sneak preview Ranny thinks will be better than I think Will thinks the Cardinals are going to be even though <laughs> we have these teams brought on because they are projected to be opposite in any case we don't have a lot of banter but I did just want to read to you from uh, from the MLB.com homepage you are familiar with the layout of the MLB.com homepage there are headlines uh-huh. on the right uh, there are it looks like there are 11 headlines not counting the link that says more headlines although as you will notice, based on the headlines today, perhaps more headlines qualifies as a headline because here <laughs> yeah. is a select few of the headlines from the, the top news section, latest news, I should say, of MLB.com. Stiff neck takes Posey out of lineup. Okay, that's fine. Dodger Seeger out with bruised chin. This is kind of lame. Machado honoring mom by playing in classic. That is, uh, that's sweet. MLB TV has live games all spring long, as it should. Uh, MLB and Game of Thrones have big plans. Mm-hmm. Watch Theo Epstein take BP versus Dempster. So we have a non-baseball player <laughs> taking batting practice against a retired pitcher, presumably taking up time that could have been used on drills. But <laughs> the one I really want to focus on here, and the one that's right in the middle, fan tries to catch Homer, comma, falls down instead. This is a story <laughs> under the latest news section of MLB.com. <laughs> I know from the video that I actually did see that this happened this morning. So as uh, as we're recording this, this is evening it's dark out on the east coast where you are it's becoming dark where i am this remains latest news emily.com fan tries to catch homer falls down instead i'm not going to click through you don't need to click through there's no point but i didn't see this (laughs) i I didn't go seeking this out i was looking for video highlights because i was i wanted to see what alex meyer looks like this spring because he changes mechanics anyway you don't need to know that and the camera angles for spring training games are terrible but before i could find anything about alex meyer the mlb.com video page took me to first a video of this fan falling down the clip i think it says fan just misses making amazing catch that gives him entirely too much credit he was backpedaling (laughs) up a grassy slope and then he kind of tripped on himself yeah Uh, so nothing out of the ordinary but then he's interviewed on the grassy berm by the MLB equivalent of a sideline reporter to talk about how he fell down, I guess, backpedaling <laughs> up a grassy slope. Like, look, we all agree that spring training is stupid, right? There's just no... <laughs> why? What? I think the internet could probably stand to lose a few digital pounds, I guess. Like, this does mm-hmm. not need to be uploaded. Neither one of those videos <laughs> needs to be on the internet. I don't know what kind of hopefully not full-time employee spent time crafting and uploading those videos onto the website but what was the actual purpose who could i do these these videos have uh watch numbers do they have public tracking i don't don't know i don't think that we can see but i'm almost certain we would be the only people who have clicked this video it's not a great highlight it's not a great (laughs) blooper it's uh he didn't really fall in a funny way no he he fell he didn't get hit in the head after he fell or or have some sort of funny reaction. He just fell as most people would in that situation. He wasn't really running at full tilt. He kind of looked like he was going to fall the whole time. He didn't really give a full effort. So not a memorable highlight or low light, really. But I guess when it's competing with basic day-to-day injuries as the main headlines in baseball right now, I guess that that makes sense that it would be one of your main stories on MLB.com. Just, just close the website for a month. Just don't do anything. <laughs> just have last year's standings until we have this year's standings. That's it. <laughs> if you hover your cursor over on the homepage at MLB.com, hover it over video, I see two videos pop up with thumbnails. Pudge takes tour of Hall of Fame before enshrinement. Totally worthwhile. Probably a touching mm-hmm. video. Important moment for him. On the right, must see comical colon fan falls face first running uphill that was difficult for me to say out loud but you (laughs) listening to me saying those words in order is probably more interesting than watching the video this means that there are now at least three edited videos on mlb.com about this incident of a fan (laughs) running up the hill there is the raw footage there is the post interview and then there's the must see comical which presumably blends the two we have now bantered about this for i don't know I two know, minutes right? is... it's getting people talking <laughs> i guess it has served its purpose we should talk to our guests okay
Alright, so we are going to go right into the previews. We're going to talk first about the Cardinals with Will Leach, senior writer at Sports on Earth, contributing editor at New York, and critic at the New Republic who doesn't like Logan as much as everyone else (laughs) (laughs) and is ready to field your complaints about that. But we're going to talk about the Cardinals. Hi, Will. Oh, yeah. The the, the thing that will be easier for me to talk about for once will be the Cardinals. I won't be getting yelled at. (laughs) Usually usually I'm getting yelled at for baseball stuff, but now now you've brought in the Logan stuff. Will, why do you like the Cardinals? <laughs> <laughs> I know that you're a, a baseball prospectus playoff odds devotee, mm. but I wonder whether this will be the year that you switch to the Fangraphs playoff <laughs> odds because based on the projections right now, they're going to be considerably kinder to the Cardinals at Fangraphs. Baseball prospectus now has them as a 76-win fourth-place team, which has to be an unfamiliar experience for you to see the Cardinals projected to do that poorly before a season starts. And Fangraphs has them as an 83-79 and win team, which maybe might be closer to the consensus. When you saw the baseball prospectus Pakoda projections, were you taken aback? Well, at last, something that Cardinals fans and Royals fans can get upset about together is uh, <laughs> anger with Dakota uh, underrating them. Uh, certainly, it makes it, it was surprising. I think it was surprising to everyone, not just Cardinals fans. It seems even even if you subscribe to the narrative, and I kind of do, that the Cardinals uh, are are in kind of a, a step taking a step backward notion right now, the idea of 76 wins. The only upside that I think I and a lot of Cardinal fans could come with that is like, okay, if the Michael Waka pitching the Travis Ishikawa thing wasn't going to get Matheny fired, 76 wins would have to do it. Uh, so that, which is, which is always a weird spot to be in to be like, well, this thing that I've cared about my entire life and think about on a pretty much hourly basis, maybe I'll cheer for them to lose, to get rid of this one guy who's ruining the experience for me. Uh, but uh, so that, that's an odd place to be. But yeah, I think 76 obviously seems uh, a little low, even if you're particularly bearish on, on the Cardinals. And of course, that was even before Reyes went down. So yeah, there's a mm-hmm. that, that that seems that does seem awfully low. Looking at uh, what Fangress puts them at 83 wins, I think mm-hmm. is the current. Yeah. So just going over the Cardinals uh, history, the last time the Cardinals were projected before the year to win 83 games was 2011 when they won 90 and the World Series. So there's some <laughs> consolation for you. Yes, and the Cardinals also have a history of doing just fine when they win 83 games in a season, like in 2006 <laughs> yeah. when they won the World Series. Yeah, well, we'll find out what your number is at the end of the episode, but I guess we should start with the Reyes injury. How how much did that lower your number, aside from just being a bummer because he was going to be a fun guy to watch for Cardinals fans and non-Cardinals fans alike? How serious a handicap did you consider it? For this particular year, not actually a ton. You were already starting to get some rumblings from camp that Reyes did not necessarily have that fifth spot secured. Part of that was because he was going to pitch for the Dominican Republic in the World Baseball Classic, which meant they weren't going to be able to like monitor him the way they would have liked. And you know, they still wanted to see what they had with Waka. They weren't sure. Uh, the momentum was not entirely in his favor to just be locked down fifth starter. Now, he probably would have ended up there eventually. But the idea that this team in particular would have been counting on Reyes, uh, certainly he, I mean, anytime you have a guy that's as good as Reyes, you're going to be better than you would be without but it, he he was not an he was kind of a a toy they were going to try to figure out how to play with this year as opposed to like a vital tool to what they were doing uh if anything and of course this is what people always tell themselves when something terrible has happened well you know we're counting on him more in 2019 so hey by then he'll be fine that's almost the way you kind of justify it. this year i mean you were looking at him they were going to be careful with his innings anyway they were thinking about putting the bullpen there was even some notion that he could start in triple a just to to make sure to kind of have a little bit of control over his things and make him ready for the end of last year. You know, one of the things that was, I think, exciting for the uh, Cardinal fans, I think one of the things that was frustrating that they fell just short, because remember, for all the frustrations that the Cardinals were last year, and they were an immensely frustrating team to watch, they still finished one game away from, from making a wild card. It was exciting to see what would have happened if Reyes, he would have been in the rotation for the playoffs. A Martinez-Reyes 1-2, I think, was pretty exciting to people. So I think that they were hoping, they were not going to push him so much and count on him to give him hundred, give them 175 innings or anything this year. They wanted to kind of measure him out anyway to have him ready for the playoffs. So really, the main hurt for this year was, oh, if they were to get in the playoffs, imagine this weapon they would have had. And now it's like, okay, well, now we just have to make sure to to get in the playoffs. I, I think it would have been, they're counting on him more in the 2018 or 2019 than necessarily what they were counting on him for this year anyway. 
When you lose a starter like that, obviously, it puts a little more of a burden on every other starter in the rotation. I think everyone goes into the season knowing you're going to need more than five starters. But one of the players who is fascinating and now will have a larger responsibility is Michael Waka, as previously mentioned. Waka, interestingly, over the last two years, uh, 2015 to 2016, strikeouts stayed the same, walks stayed the same, home runs stayed the same, ERA went from low threes to low fives. So... In terms of performance and also physically, what is the outlook with Michael Walker right now in his career? Yeah, you know, they it's funny because they also just went through a particularly contentious, not Brian Levine contentious, but pretty contentious arbitration thing with with Walker, which they it, it worked out very much to their favor because it happened right before the Reyes injury. So one of the things they were saying was, oh, well, he's not even going to be in our rotation anyway. He's, we're not even sure we're going to use him with him. And of course, now they're, they're kind of counting on him there. Uh, one of the things that caused him trouble last year is frankly the same thing that caused all of the Cardinals starters trouble, which was that the infield defense was pretty terrible. Uh, poor Mike Leake uh, had a better season than than he's had in a while and and his numbers were so much worse and i think waka suffered from that a little bit as well but you know waka has always had you know, Derek gould from the san luis post dispatch has always talked about how uh, you know, Waka has had an injury, has has a has an injury and a, a motion that will lead to more injury. And they've they've talked about having surgery in the past. They've and they've they they tried to change his mechanics to ease the injury, and that's always kind of a strange thing and always kind of a risk when they do that. So they've kind of reached the point with Waka to where they kind of need to see what they have now. And 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 if and you know he's reaching the point that he's going to be they've only got team control of him for another year or two. This actually in a way works out best for for the relationship the Cardinals have with with Waka works out very well cuz now they're like okay, now we know. Now we know what we're going to have with Waka and you know it it the, his main thing his main pitch has always been his changeup and and it, the the problem with that is his fastball he was he was not able to locate that that well last year which meant they could kind of they didn't. They weren't as scared of the fastball, and therefore could look for the changeup. So he was getting hit a little harder. But really, you know, he has been the same pitcher he's been since he had that late in 2014 injury, the one that led him to the aforementioned nightmarish Mike Matheny decision of letting him pitch for the first time in a month uh, in a decisive walk off. <laughs> The NLCS game, but we'll talk about that later <laughs> and for the rest of our lives. Um, but so Rock has not been the same since then, but he's also not been this nightmare pitcher. And so he, you know, you think about what he was in 2013. This is a guy that almost threw a no hitter in an elimination game on the road in front of a lunatic uh, PNC uh, uh, Park crowd. So uh, certainly, you know, th- th- he's not been that pitcher from the beginning, but I think now it's time for them to kind of realize is he, is he, can he get a workload? They don't really have a lot to lose. He's not really a young pitcher there invested long term with anymore so this in a way you can kind of just give him that five spot and you'll find out one way or the other and do you buy trevor rosenthal as a possible contender for starts he's supposedly throwing a new slider and throwing more of a curveball than he has in relief is this a viable option it's something they've always kind of toyed with for reasons that have always been a little baffling, particularly because the main issue with Rosenthal, even when he was at his best, was control. And, you know, the control really, he fell off the table last year. Though he did come around at the end of the season and and, and looked a little more healthy and, and his command was better. But yeah, you know, they've always, remember Rosenthal, it's, it's worth remembering that when Rosenthal was originally converted to a closer, he was not crazy about it. He's, he, it was funny, every spring training, he'd come in as the closer. He'd just set the Cardinals' save record and like, okay, Rosenthal, what, what do you think about this season? He's like, I'd like to maybe be a starter. And we're like, <laughs> really? You have like two pitches. So, and, and you can't really command either one of them. Um, uh, so I think that they, what they wanted to do with him is to do what everybody's wanting to do right now, which is create, create their, uh, their, their own uh, uh, Miller. You know, they're, they're wanting to, to have that guy that can, you, that, that weapon that's not a closer closer, but you can use for multiple innings. So they wanted to stretch him out a little bit there. Uh, the worry there is you don't know if you're going to get that guy at the end of the, you had last season. You know, you don't know if you're going to get that guy you were two years ago. The starting thing has really felt like more of a stretching out thing. I don't think any, they, they kind of were humoring him with the, with the, with the starter thing until Reyes went down, where it brought up the idea that would still be a possibility. I have to say, even if Waka really struggles, it's still hard to see Rosenthal uh, getting that spot. They love, you know, they have uh, particularly on uh, right hand, you know, they, uh, Matt Bowman was really good for them last year, but they don't have that truly, unless you really, believe in Jonathan Broxton and no one should do that. Uh, they would like to have that that big arm to set up now to set up O. Uh, and I think that they'd love to use him in that strategic bullpen deployment, even if they're kind of, uh, they're telling him and patting him on the head. No, 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 no. Seriously, we'll, we're considering your starter. We'll do it. We'll do it. I don't think they really are. 
moving away from the pitching staff, in 2015, Aledmus Diaz was uh, designated for assignment on July 8th. He was uh, he was in the minor leagues. Aledmus Diaz as an infielder in the minor leagues that season. When he was designated for assignment, he was slugging 344. He had a 636 OPS. And now if I have done all this math correctly, which I haven't, so I'm just going to click a different window here. But anyway, Aledmus Diaz that season, he stayed with the Cardinals. He was not claimed off waivers by anybody else. Over the rest of the minor league season that year, after staying with the Cardinals, after being DFA'd, through to the Fall League, he slugged 578, uh, almost completely out of nowhere. And then last season, Aled Mestiaz was, next to Corey Seager, the best offensive shortstop in all of Major League Baseball, completely out of freaking nowhere. So what is the deal with Aled Mestiaz? Is he is he the clear starter? Is he one of the best players on the Cardinals? What is going? What is what is what? <laughs> yeah, my favorite piece of trivia about Alenmis Diaz being released. I mean, he was. I mean, he was he was put on waivers. Anyone could have claimed him. He was a little bit more expensive. That's. I think there would have been some interest if he'd have been a little cheaper. But he, every team could have claimed him. The reason the Cardinals did that was to get Dan Johnson on the on the twenty five man <laughs> roster. So that that is where we were at that point in the season. So that that's and but it's funny after he pass through waivers that was when you saw the shift and you know i know that we talk about uh, it's hard to be like well that you know of course in 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 cardinal media and the way that they'll tell it that was the kick in the pants that he needed that was the spur uh of what it was going on but clearly something happened because after that almost immediately he started hitting after after that experience well we all just assumed this was a big bust i uh, in in the in the annual la- a year ago uh the prospectus annual 2016 it was all about how well the cardinals they can't hit on all of them they can't turn all of these guys into great players and then diaz turns out to have this season <laughs> it's funny we've talked in the past about uh you know we talked about reyes and uh, people like well how indispensable is he how much if, if there's an indispensable cardinal i think gary molina is still that person now but diaz is right there there's really nobody else to play shorts i remember ruben they signed ruben tejada at the beginning of last year to, to try to play shortstop that was and again that's another i know i keep bringing up matheny but uh, that was another like give matheny the veteran shortstop he so desperately wants even though we have a guy that's hitting the ball really well right now um and so once finally Diaz, they really had no choice but to play Diaz, he did start hitting. Now, his defense was pretty terrible at the beginning, uh, but it was really more, he's never going to have a lot of range, but he was messing up obvious plays. Cause I think he'd not really, he'd not, it, the game speed was almost a little bit too much. That settled down in the second half of the season. You, they don't need him to hit as well as he did last year. And they need him to field basically the way he did the second half. Uh, one of the things that's really fun about him is that there is one of the things I've, I, I, we Cardinals fans that are again often a little exhaustive getting yelled at all the time are always trying to be like, look, look at Carlos Martinez. Look at all these fun, look at Adam Wainwright. Look at these really fun players we have. Uh, we're not all, uh, uh, you know, angry uh, Southerners. And so to see Alemis Diaz, who's this exuberant player, who's very enjoyable, who's who uh, who has a, uh, a a flair to him that and and is is really beloved, particularly among the team and the staff. Even when they thought he was just crapping out, there was a sadness to the idea of putting on waivers i think he's always been very kind of uh, beloved within the organization so to see him kind of break through he's not what he was uh particularly in april april he was great then he kind of fell off in may and then rebounded in uh, in august and september you don't need to ha- all you need him to do is to be a league average hitter and a league average shortstop and the cardinals have a lot to build around that those people are hard to find and frankly the cardinals don't have any backups right now i think eventually delvin perez is the guy they want to have uh, uh their, their top draft pick from last year but he's 19 right now if you don't play him at shortstop you're looking at jed jerko or johnny peralta and i don't think anybody people are worried about them playing third base so you're particularly worried about them playing shortstop yeah you mentioned molina i mean he's almost 35 now he may not have the power he had for a few seasons there and there's sort of a concern is he declining is he approaching the end of the line still a really valuable player he led all catchers in innings caught last season so still durable of course he had some injuries the the couple years before then but durable last year was the fifth most valuable catcher in baseball according to bp stats which include framing which he is still very good at so maybe not the MVP candidate that he was, but still, if you were choosing catchers for this season alone, he'd be one of the first guys off the board still. I mean, apart even from any of the the leadership stuff or the pitch calling stuff that we don't have a great way to quantify, the stuff that we can quantify, he's still a star. 
Yeah, and he's so integral to everything that those pitchers. I we all discussed the idea of how do you how do you quantify what what a pitcher uh, a catcher's relationship to pitchers, but to a man like Adam Wainwright last year, uh, last year Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina passed Bob Gibson and Tim McCarver as as the most pitches thrown to each other in Cardinals history. It was like a big thing, and they were because you know, the Cardinals they're into all that history stuff, and it was a big deal for them. And Wainwright famously says he's never shook off Molina. He just does what he tells he he's told him to forever. And I think the entire staff treats him that way. The issues with with Molina is the contract coming up. You know, he's a free he can be a free agent after this next season. Now everyone thinks there's going to be some sort of of extension, but it is going to be tricky, you know, uh, because not only has Molina, not, first off, the Cardinals actually have a replacement. Carson Kelly is uh, considered, uh, among many people, the top-catching prospect in baseball. He's he's a converted third baseman who hits a, roughly a league average, has become uh, a a really trusted defensive catcher, which in the Cardinals organization, which fetishizes them from Tom Pagnozzi and Daryl Porter to Mike Matheny to to, uh, to Yanni Molina, they, catching is like the, the whole basis of the whole organization. I think Tony La Russa had a lot to do with that uh, during his time. So uh, Kelly has that little stamp of approval. So clearly his time is going to come. But the the the, the issue when it comes to Molina, he, I mean, Kelly's still just 22. He's going to be in AAA this year. So you've got another year to do that. But Molina wants an extension. So on one hand, you've got Kelly coming. On the other hand, you've got Molina, who had a terrific second half with the bat. He was probably, he was one of the best, if not the best Cardinal hitter, the second half of the season. And the framing is still there, and the and, the, and they still trust him. There are still, I think his pass balls were at an all-time high last year, and more to the point, runners aren't scared of him anymore. And you know, we all we all know that really the runners are stealing off the pitcher. But for a good stretch of seasons, people just did not run on Yadier Molina. And I think that that myth has been busted a little bit. Billy Hamilton famously has never been thrown out by Molina. And he steals on him at every opportunity. He gets to first base and immediately starts smiling. Like it's become this like big thing between the two of them, which is very amusing, but also speaks to that idea that Molina is he's slowing and how how yeah. could he not how could he not i mean he, right. he for every year Matheny would always say oh we're gonna limit his innings we're gonna limit his innings and you end up with catch more than anyone else this year he's actually not even saying that they're saying they're he, he's gonna catch more than anybody else and it, he's gonna have to wear down that contract is gonna be a big it's gonna be a big issue and a lot of people are curious to see how it's gonna go down yeah last year was the first year of Molina's career that baseball prospectus had him with below average throwing runs yeah. only by Two tenths of a run, granted, but still, he'd he'd been you know positive every single year of his career, and and wasn't last year. Yeah, and it's funny too because you know this is, I mean, Molina is one of the big things people talk talk about the Cardinals is the idea that that well they can't let Molina go. He's Yadier Molina. He you know he's he was he he played for the 04 team for crying out loud. Like he's been around for a really long time, and he's been central to everything they do. And he was he was Larusa's guy on the field. Now he's Matheny's guy on the field. And he is so so central to everything that they do. But you know the Cardinals have let Albert Pujols walk, and uh, and I think that gets overstated sometimes. And you know the Cardinals were very upset when Pujols left. Uh, people act like the Cardinals were like, "Oh, we're not going to make that mistake." Like they were devastated when they had, they had money earmarked for him. They wanted him to stay. But once you've let Albert Pujols walk, and you saw that with with Matt, Matt Holiday, another longtime Cardinal last year, they actually told him with a month in the season, "We're not resigning you at the end of the year." So they've shown not to be driven by sentiment in these regards. So Molina, who I think is probably the most sentimental middle cardinal arguably as much as pools was for a catcher who is catches as much as he does and is still productive but is also seeing signs in his performance that are starting to falter a little bit it's a really tough spot particularly when you've got uh, a really promising catcher coming up behind him i think you feel bad for tony cruz who spends five years behind the catcher who catches more than anybody else and then tony cruz finally gets freed and goes to the royals where salvador perez starts every (laughs) single game last year tony cruz batted five times in the major leagues he had zero hits i wanted to ask you about uh so on the fangraphs community blog there was a recent analytical entry that identified Stephen Biscotti as the least interesting player of 2016 because he was basically <laughs> average at everything. The opposite of Stephen Biscotti in many ways, except for maybe one in terms of total value, is Randall Grichik. Mm-hmm. Randall Grichik is odd. Last year, for July, he had three times as many strikeouts as walks, and he had a 77 WRC+. He was bad, but patient, but bad. After that, from July on, he had about nine times as many strikeouts as walks. He swung at everything. He missed everything, except that he also had a 124 WRC plus because he hit the crap out of the ball. I'm going to read a quote here from this player page. Uh, Grichik talking about what he's going to do in 2017. Last year, I tried to feel for the ball a little too much, trying to be a hitter that I'm not. 
This year, I'm going to let it fly and have some fun like I did the last month or month and a half of the year. Sid Grichik, who hit 12 of his 24 homers in August and September. What is Randall Grichik today? Is can he can he be successful as this guy who who never gets on base via anything but an accidental single that he hits? Yeah, it's it's particularly worrisome because you know when he struggled last year, he can tell himself all he wants is because I was trying to beat Stephen Piscotty. I was trying to pretend I was Stephen Piscotty and I was not swinging for the fences all the time and just being the steady guy. But man, there nothing a Steve a Randall Grichik strikeout is a particularly ugly thing to witness. When he misses, he misses with much fury and with much distance between the bat and the ball. So uh, I think that one of the things that helped him when he he's one of those players that when he gets in a groove and when he really really connects on one, you're like, why is this guy not hitting fourth? This guy this this guy could be a, uh, a, a almost a trumbo uh, a type of player. Except he doesn't. But the main problem with him is he doesn't walk and he strikes out way too much. But he'll go on these streaks like he had in this in this in the last part of last season to where you're like, okay, I feel very comfortable with him. And the thing that helps him also too, he's really good defensively. I think so, uh, they were wary about him in center field. They thought he was a little overextended out there, which is why, of course, they brought Fowler. But he's going to be a terrific left fielder because he was a pretty good center fielder. So I think one of the things they really wanted to do is shore up, as I said, shore up the defense this year. So putting him in left, even if you get these wild peaks and valleys for him, if he's playing steady defense and evens out with these peaks and valleys all all season, I think they're going to be okay. The issue with Grichik is, uh, and again, it's funny how this keeps coming up, but the issue with Grichik again is whenever he struggled, like a lot of young players, when they've, they've had any sort of struggle, they get yanked. You know, he was yanked from the lineup during that struggle last year, was sent down to the minor leagues, just like Colton Wong was. And it, and it took them a while, it kind of messed up Wong's whole season. Grichik had to go, had gone from being the center field, uh, the, the starting center field of the Cardinals were really kind of building their whole roster around to being down uh, in the minor leagues. He came back. Back up and started hitting again, but the idea that these things were a causation correlation is something that frankly not even Grichik says. So, you know, I think that what they need to have with Grichik is that kind of patience to deal with those values because you're going to get these runs. He's very much like a Chris, like I mean, he doesn't have the power of a Chris Davis, but he's a Chris Davis type hitter where you're going to have these times where he looks absolutely horrible, and there's going to be these times where he looks like the be- the best hitter on, on, on in the team, and you just have to weather those bad parts. And the advantage to Grichik is that he plays good enough defense that it actually it actually does even out to a positive player. All right, so we should talk about Matheny, who was the subject who? of your I'm essay. Sorry. I'm sorry, what? Oh, sorry. <laughs> in the Baseball Prospectus Annual and has been a very contentious figure in the local media, which is normally pretty nice, it seems like, and also in the blogosphere, if people still say that word. So we know that he's not great tactically. He has the, the huge Waka screw-up that we've already mentioned that might have been a fireable offense for other managers on other teams and obviously it's a consistent pattern with him and that's maybe the most visible thing from afar that's the thing that bothers us the most annoys us the most we can nitpick that kind of thing in the bullpen management and whatever it is but we know that's also maybe not the most important thing that a manager does and we have a long history of oh this guy's not a great tactical manager but he does this and that in the clubhouse and so that is the more important thing ultimately doesn't seem like Matheny necessarily does that either so why is the organization so attached to Matheny that as you mentioned they extended him right after the Cubs won the World Series which was just a devastating one-two punch (laughs) for many Cardinals fans why do they like him because they are smart it seems like and progressive and they've built a great baseball team over the last decade plus and yet they have this attachment to Mike Matheny that no one else can understand so what do you think it is? They extended him about like eight hours after the World Series ended. Like most people weren't even awake yet. We're like, oh, like we're all dealing with the hangover of that. And then that happened. Uh, I think there's two things. One, Matheny has been a large part of the Cardinal organization for a long time. He's a big part of Cardinals history. There's a new book. Uh, there's no way I was going to get through a discussion of the Cardinals without bringing up Rick Ankiel at one point. And Rick Ankiel's new autobiography is out. Of course, Ankiel, uh, when he hit, throws his pitch that starts him off uh, on his kind of journey where uh, where he what he what we call the yips and they, he calls the thing was because he didn't have Matheny as his catcher. Matheny had to hurt himself heading into that series. Matheny is a big part of all of Cardinals history. When he was a man, when he was a catcher for the Cardinals, everyone to a man said, oh, Matheny's going to manage someday. He's going to probably manage the Cardinals someday. This has always been this kind of thing with him. And he kind of represents, I would argue, he rep- that thing that that I, I listened to your podcast with Grant Brisby and uh, that, that 
unquantifiable thing that everybody hates about the Cardinals, I might represent that Mike Matheny is in fact the, the, the manifestation <laughs> of that thing in that it is, there is this sort of baseball man's arrogance, this sort of, I've got, I've got a firm jaw and I step on the dugout and I look determined, but I, I'm not actually, there's nothing actually going on upstairs. There was a great story by Mark Saxon who covers the Cardinals for ESPN. And uh, he, he, he wrote the original story where he asked Dexter Fowler about, uh, about the, the Muslim man and his wife. And he wrote a piece last week about how Fowler, you know, Fowler famous part of the fun Cubs, part of the enjoyable Cubs. Everybody's having a blast. Joe Madden, just the most wacky, lovable guy in the world. Who doesn't love that guy? Well, Dexter Fowler comes over from the Cubs and, you know, everyone had always kind of wondered. There'd been rumors even that Jason Hayward had talked to Fowler about, hey, the Cardinals are not actually that much fun. I think he's kind of a stick in the mud, but these are always kind of kind of rumors. Well, there was this story about how Fowler's trying to loosen up the Cardinals clubhouse. He's trying to have fun. And there's these quotes from Matheny and the quotes from Matheny are like, yeah, well, I mean, I guess some people like this stuff. Uh, he brought like a he brought like a boombox out, to, and they're playing music. It's not my thing, but you know we'll try it and we'll see. And he's very much there's this, there's this great video uh, someone found recently of him in like 2010 talking about leadership and how this country needs it and clearly doesn't have it, and just like just ugh. And so Matheny is very much a a uh, uh, what you've seen in him is the stubbornness. Like Tony Larusa managed the Cardinals for 16 years, and. By the end, anytime you have someone manage the team for 16 years, he's going to drive you nuts. And but one of the things, the things that drove Larusa nuts was that drove us nuts about Larusa was the idea that he was so insistent on veterans that he wouldn't trust young players. He would run a Colby Rasmus out of town just because he didn't like him. And and there was a lot of frustration with that. But at least Tony LaRusso was a good tactical manager. would try new things and had this fierce, over, uh, overwhelming, almost terrifying uh, desire to, to win and this horrible fear of losing. Matheny is basically has all the worst stuff of LaRusso, the not trusting the not trusting the, the young players, uh, insisting on veterans, but none of the good tactical stuff. And you know, one of the things that Matheny was sold for remember, Matheny was hired right after the Cardinals had won the 2011 World Series. After Larusa had retired, it was you could have. There's a lot of very horrible human beings that could have been hired at manager at that point. And Cardinal fans have been like, "Hey, whatever, man. <laughs> we just <laughs> won the most exciting World Series in the world." And so it, it felt like. But the thing that he, that was sold about him was he's good with young players. He's been part of the Cardinal system. He 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 knows how all these guys work. He's been at spring training all these years. He knows these young players. And what we've seen is we've seen him really mess with guys like Randall Grichik or really mess with guys like Colton Wong. Earlier, mess with guys like Oscar Tavares and Carlos Martinez. So, you know, that I think has been the signature frustration with him. And I think what you saw last year was a thing that you had not seen before, which was you saw some clubhouse discord. That was the first time you'd seen that. You know, you always hear about Matheny. The players respect him. The players love him. He's got that leadership quality. And therefore, you could you were supposed to forgive the tactical issues. He's learning, is what John Mosellock is saying every year. So eventually, I'm sure he's going to get it. But he's uh, but what what you saw last year for the first time spring training there are all these players only meetings that popped up you started to hear all these rumblings of frustration from from within and I think that has led to even more skepticism and frustration with that it's not just the tactical issues it's not just the struggles with uh, young players it's the stubbornness and the insistence and the inability to really be able to adapt that uh, uh, for in a game that is constantly shifting and it is a different world that. NL Central is different. All of Major League Baseball is different. Then when Matheny is hired in 2012, and I'm not sure he's made any of those adjustments. And I think uh, just about every Cardinals fan would agree with me on that one. All right. You want to give us your prediction for the Cardinals 2017 win total? I don't understand why people are always so fretting about this question. Like we're making like, like, Oh no, I might get it wrong. Trust me. There are so many things I've said already that I already got wrong. Don't worry. Um, Yeah, but you're deflecting right now. Say a uh, number. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry, you're right. I think 87 sounds about right to me. I think 87 right on the cusp of the wild card race. I think they're, I, I th- and it's probably maybe about what I would have given them even if Reyes would have been healthy. I think they're an 87. If things turn right, they can get into 90. If things go bad, uh, they, they could be at 82, 83. I think that's about what we're looking at. No, I'll tell you, if things go bad, they can be a lot worse than 82 or 83. So is that a wild card? Is that enough to pass up the Giants or the Mets or, you know, some other team? 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I listen. I'm very low on the Mets this year. I feel like if it, and and I th- I've, I'm one of those people that thinks the Rockies have a little puncher's chance this year. So uh, I'm I think that's a wild that's a potential wild card race, and particularly because too the Cardinals have some flexibility to make a move at the deadline. I wanted them. A lot of people wanted them to go out and make a run at say an Encarnacion uh, in the offseason, particularly with what Encarnacion ended up signing for. It seems like it would have been well within the budget. So you can see them making some sort of move for uh, some high ticket move if they need at the deadline. I think they have been shaking by what the Cubs have done. And there's this clear sense, I think, among uh, Mosellock and the rest of the franchise that they need to make a step forward this year. And I think they'll be eager to do it at the deadline if they have to. All right. You can find Will on Twitter at William F. Leach. You can find his newsletter at tinyletter.com slash William F. Leach, where he collects all of his many pieces that he writes every week. Will, thanks very much. An honor. Thanks for having me, guys. All right. We'll be right back with Randy Deserly to talk about the Royals. Back. We're ready to talk about the Royals with Randy Gisarly, who is coming to us after hours at the doctor's office. Hello, Randy. Hey, how are you guys? All right. Great. So I guess the, the Royals, their reality and their projections are maybe finally kind of converging, but we can talk about where you think their number is at the end of this episode. But Obviously, they had a tough winter just because of Giordano Ventura alone emotionally, but attempting to replace that talent is something that I don't know that they could have done in this market and on the timeline that they had to do it. And so they scrambled and they signed Jason Hamill and they have Travis Wood and they lost Edinson Volquez too, who himself was replacing another pitcher who was the victim of a a tragedy. So do they have a better rotation than they used to, a worse rotation than they used to? We've seen them succeed with a pretty shoddy rotation anyway, so not necessarily a bar to success. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing I think the the 2014-15 Royals kind of proved that conventional wisdom had changed. It was the idea that you needed a at least a good starting rotation, you know, to, to win in the playoffs. Um, and they had, you know, I would say a, a below average rotation in the aggregate for those two years. And they found a way to win with insane bullpen and, and I wouldn't even say good offense, but certainly timely hitting in, mm-hmm. in the playoffs. So, yeah, I mean, they don't need the rotation necessarily to be great, but they certainly needed to be better than it has been because the bullpen is probably not going to be, as good as it, as it as it has been, and in fact, last year it was already down from its peak. I mean, they didn't have Greg Holland. Wade Davis was partly hurt. Uh, Joaquin Soria came in and was kind of a disaster compared to uh, the expectations. So the rotation needs to be better. And I think, given obviously the the awful and, and unexpected loss of Jordan Ventura, I think Dayton Moore did as good a job as could be expected in replacing those innings in addition to the expected loss of Volquez. I think Danny Duffy is the key to this rotation being better than it has been because he started to have that the breakout, the long-awaited breakout last year. He's, he cut his walks fairly significantly and increased his strikeouts fairly significantly, which is always a good combination. And, I mean, I think he has a chance to have the best season by a Royal starting pitcher since basically since Zach Greinke was traded, which is to say better than anybody on those World Series teams. So I think that's some good reason for optimism there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Jason Hamill will certainly is capable of replicating what Jordan Ventura did last year. He doesn't certainly cannot replicate the upside that uh, the Ventura had, but I think that he's as, as good a replacement as we can ask for. The Royals are asking a lot of Jason Vargas, who was surprisingly decent in 2008. 14. Certainly not a sexy starter, but the kind of guy who gives you 180 league average innings, but then missed most of the last two years with Tommy John. Came back late in the year and, and looked good enough that they're optimistic about it, but there's obviously a lot of question marks there. And then the Royals are hoping that either Travis Wood or Nathan Carnes will be that fifth starter and, and pitch well in that role. Uh, obviously, Ian Kennedy is still there and was 
for a guy who was considered to be, you know, one of the worst, potentially the worst contracts given out last offseason, a five-year deal, was actually really good for the Royals. I mean, give up too many home runs, like basically everybody in baseball last year, mm-hmm. um, even in Kauffman Stadium, but limited the damage in, in, in other ways. But I think the hope there is that Kennedy at least doesn't regress too much. Vargas pitches like as well as he did two years ago. And Hamill replaces Ventura, and then Duffy improves. So there is hope, but I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of ifs, ands, and buts there. I mean, there's a lot of potential there for the rotation to regress and be certainly no better than last year, and maybe even a little worse. And to me, that's that's really what it comes down to. If the rotation is league average or better, I think this team can be competitive. But if not, then it won't. Two of the baseball terms I think are most commonly linked are Jason Vargas and not sexy, but <laughs> also related to the the matter of the rotation depth. Do you think, if you were a betting man, do you think that this season Kyle Zimmer throws more pitches for the Royals than you do? Than me? Than you? I would say yes. I I would say yes. If if the over under was greater than zero point five, then maybe not but i think my my over under is zero so yes i do think he will make his major league debut this year i you know lucy's pulled the football away many times in the past but it was almost a relief when he was diagnosed with thoracic outlet syndrome because it was one of the few things that could explain why he could never stay healthy could never maintain his velocity when he was on the mound and he rarely took the mound it was one of the few things that could explain that and still give you some hope that he could come back from that and actually pitch. I do think at this point, if you asked me if I thought he'd make more starts than I would this year, I might be more hesitant. I do think at this point he may be like that ship may have sailed. He may be a reliever in the long run, but given how low expectations are for him at this point, if he can just be a, you know, a good 70 inning reliever, I think that would be a win for this organization. And Jeff wrote something not long ago about how the Royals barely resemble the Royals. And it seems like this happened so quickly. Like, it seems like just yesterday we were watching exciting speed and bullpen and contact Royals in the playoffs in the World Series. And now they're almost a completely different team aside from the defense, which still looks good. They just don't have those incredible contact skills and speed skills. Do you think it's that those are the skills that decline quickly, or is it more about just turnover on the team? Life comes at you fast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this team is, you know, we knew it was coming, but we thought it would be another year before the, the makeup of the team would change so dramatically. And yeah, I mean, look, when you are the arguably the greatest contact team of all time, as the 2015 Royals were, you, you figure that's probably not going to last at that level. But it probably has changed more than I would expect it, and particularly in the sense of the decisions that the front office has made to replace some guys that they have suddenly gone away from what, what looked like targeting contact hitters to targeting power hitters at the expense of contact, which I think is – you could certainly frame it as a as – a, good reflection of the front office that they are not wedded to a specific way of winning. I mean, if you want to be Machiavellian or, or in, in, I guess, in modern sports term, Belichickian uh, about the way the Royals built the team, you could argue that the Royals were brilliant to build a an extreme contact team in an era in which contact rates dropped. Have, have they been dropping for 90 years, but particularly in the, the five years or so before they their, their rise as a, as a pennant winning team, strikeout rates had jumped like 15, 20%. And, and you could make the argument that suddenly making con the ability to make contact was more of an asset by 2015 than it had ever been before. But what happened in, what was the big sort of change in terms of offensive profile in 2016? Strikeout rates continue to go up as they always do, but it was maybe like two or 3%. But the big thing was we had this home run spike that just completely came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Right. I know you guys have both looked into it, and there are lots of theories. I, I, I agree with you, Ben, that the ball probably has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. I have no proof of that, but it makes more sense than anything else that I've I've seen out there. So is this a, a bet that the Royals are sort of making that, well, this power surge around the sport is going to continue? And so whereas in 2014, the Royals could go to the World Series with the fewest home runs in all of baseball, if suddenly home runs are up you know, 15 or 20% around the game, having the least power relative to, you know, the, the league of any team is going to hurt you more. You can't, you can no longer just ignore home runs. And so you go out and you trade for Jorge Soler and you go out and you sign Brandon Moss 
and and you place you know you place a premium on that sort of thing. You tr- you trade Gerard Dyson. A lot every you know that move. A lot of these moves can be explained f- for other reasons. Dyson was going to be a free agent at the end of the year, but and ultimately you have you have traded speed and defense for power. Maybe there maybe there's something to be said in 2017 versus 2015 for that philosophy. But I do I, I like the fact at least that the Royals are trying something different because the, the biggest danger I think to any World Series winning team is the the danger of thinking that what worked one year will work the same the next year and and making no changes or very few changes. I remember the 2002 Angels were sort of sort of bragged about how how little they changed their team uh, after that. Uh, off season and they regressed dramatically 2003 the Royals last year didn't change I mean and it was a victory in some ways they didn't change a lot because they didn't have to because they were able to resign Alex Gordon for instance and you know they were able to bring back some of the guys that people maybe didn't expect them to but obviously that didn't work very well so I like the fact that the Royals at least are trying something different I think there is a sense of I don't know if you'd call it desperation but certainly a sense of urgency uh, given that you're going to have so many free agents. They've already traded away some of the impending free agents, but three of the most important guys on this team, Mustakis, Eric Hosmer, Lorenzo Kane, are all free agents at the end of the year. You know, Before the trades, Wade, Wade Davis was going to be a free agent. Gerard Dyson was going to be a free agent. Danny Duffy was. They were able to re-sign him. Alcides Escobar is going to be a free agent. I, I don't expect that he'll come back because they actually have a replacement probably there in Raul Mondesi, who, g- given the fairly mediocre bar that Escobar sets, that I think Mondesi will probably be able to match, but I'm I, it's I'm tr- I've tried to think of a team historically that has sort of faced this same situation, kind of a small market team that can't be expected to to keep all of its players that had so many good or great players, so many sort of integral players to their team all becoming free agents at once. the 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 best example I can think of is sort of the 1991-92 Pittsburgh Pirates. You recall, you know, they won three to three uh, NL Easts in a row, and uh, I think Bobby Bonilla was a free agent after 1991, and they were able to come back and win the division. But after 1992, Barry Bonds left, Doug Drabeck left. They they were able to to uh, find the money to sign one of their impending free agents, and they decided to give that money to Andy Van Slyke, which mm-hmm. probably wasn't the the wisest of moves. But you know, after what happened after 1992, when Bonds and, and Drabeck left. The team lost had twenty consecutive losing seasons in a row, so that's that's not really the model I'm hoping for here. But it it I, to me it's it's a sense of how unusual it is that a team is in a situation like the Royals are, knowing that whatever happens in 2017, it's go, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better after this year. And I think Dayton Moore is doing everything he can to prevent that, but there's only so much he can do. He's not going to be able to sign resign everyone. And so the fact that you know, they traded Dyson to get Nate Carnes, to get a, a, a player under control for four years, traded away Davis and got Jorge Soler, again, a player under control for four years, I, it's a way to cushion the blow without dramatically reducing their chances of winning this year. Because you know, the reality is, if you're going to be bad in 2018 regardless, then there really isn't much point in trading wins this year for wins in the future. Even if it's one win this year for three wins in, you know, over the next three years, let's say that might not be a wise move for the Royals to make, given where they're going to be on the on the on sort of the success curve after this year. So I think he's done a decent job in that. I don't feel like those tr- the trades they made has have has affected their win total a significant amount. And bringing in Jason Hamill and bringing in Travis Wood and and Brandon Moss have restored some of those wins. So I think that they're in as good a position as they could be, given that in the middle of this, they lost one of the two or three most valuable commodities in the organization permanently. But it's a really tiny needle that Dayton Moore is trying to thread here. And I really have no no idea if he's going to be able to pull it off or not. One of the ways in which the Royals no longer resemble their peak selves, which you've already mentioned, uh, I'm looking at the Thangress page right now. The Royals are projected to have the... Let's call it, it, the nicer way to put it would be the penultimate bullpen, but really the second worst bullpen. Only the Diamondbacks have a bullpen that's projected worse, and when I, I look at the list, obviously we all know Kelvin Herrera is very good, but the the most interesting guy who stands out to me, the guy who might be able to save the unit, or maybe not save it, is Matt Strom. Matt Strom mm-hmm. had a wonderful debut down mm-hmm. the stretch of last season, sort of off the radar. What do you feel like saying so that people know more about Matt Strom and what he might be able to do in 2017? Strom was, yeah, I mean, he was a huge revelation last year. Um, and you know, again, one of those examples of what happens when you take a guy who's a starting pitcher 
whether in his case it was in the minor leagues, and move him to the bullpen. And every now and then, we, we expect it, it to, uh, all pitchers to pick up velocity, but every now and then it just dramatically changes their profile. I mean, he was a, he was a good starting pitcher in the minor leagues. He was promising, but I don't think anyone expected what he did in the major leagues. You know, he struck out 30 of 88 batters. He gave up four runs in 22 innings. Uh, and he looked exceptional. My left-handed who throws 94. It's a very small sample size, so I think it could be easily overlooked. I mean, I don't think he came up until August. But given the Royals sort of, you know, the, this legacy they have of great bullpens uh, and taking guys who were not necessarily heralded. You know, Greg Holland was a 10th round pick who was not a, a considered a top, even a top relief prospect coming through the system. Wade Davis was a failed starter. Kelvin Herrera was the one guy who had uh, showed a tremendous amount of talent in the minors, but couldn't stay healthy and they moved into the bullpen. But given that legacy, I think at least in Kansas City, there's every expectation that Matt Strom is going to be an absolute force in that bullpen this year. And I think one of the ancillary benefits of signing both Jason Hamill and, uh, and Travis Wood is before those guys signed, the thought was to move Matt Strom to, to give him a chance to, to move to the rotation. And I do think in the long run that he has that kind of ability. But again, when you're, when right now the Royals need to, as a Royals fan, it's kind of weird to be in a position where the Royals need to be willing to sacrifice future wins for, for, for present wins. Like development takes a, se- a back seat right now to winning in the here and now. And I think for the 2017 Royals, having Matt Strom in a role where he's already proved he can do, in, in a, where they have a lot of need, given that they traded Wade Davis, and Joaquin Soria could be good, but I don't think, given the way he pitched last year, that they, anybody wants him anywhere near the eighth inning until he proves he's in better. Having Matt Strom potentially take that role I think is, is huge. So having the freedom to move him there and not worry about him in the rotation uh, is a big win for the Royals. And and on that subject, if we're going to talk about, you know, wild cards in that bullpen this year, I would like to at least bring up the name of Josh Stomont, who was the Royal second round pick two years ago, basically the hardest throwing pitcher in college, had absolutely no command whatsoever, but like, you know, could touch 101 and sit in the high 90s easily. Had a, a promising year in the minor leagues last year as a starting pitcher, Command still bad. I think he walked like seven batters per nine innings, but his la- he, he got promoted to double A and actually got better midseason. And in his last six weeks, he cut his walk rate like by 30%. The wild card there is, would he be even better in the bullpen where he can air it out, focus on his best two pitches, throw a few more strikes? I have a feeling, if the Royals are going to be competitive this year, I have a very strong feeling that Josh Stomont will be the Matt Strom of 2017 and probably be up sooner. By May or June, he could be a guy in that bullpen that surprises everyone. I mean, I think I I did not know the Royals were projected to have the second worst bullpen in baseball. That is a surprise to me. I would take the over on that for no other reason that the Royals have the one thing Dayton Moore has done consistently, even when the Royals were pretty terrible in his early years, the one thing that they seem to have a knack for was getting good performances out of relievers, obviously finding Joaquin Soria in the row five draft very early, et cetera. So I, I think that they will be above average in that regard. And I think that, uh, Strom and, and possibly Stallman will be a big part of that. How would you handle Salvador Perez if it were up to you? Because Travis Sachik wrote something a couple weeks ago at Fangrass about how he deserves a break. And of course, if you look at his innings played, he leads everyone even before you account for the playoff innings. And his first and second half career splits are pretty dramatic. We've seen him seem to suffer from that fatigue down the stretch. On the other hand, if your backup is Drew Butera, you could maybe make a case that you're better off playing a compromised Perez than your next best option, maybe the best route would be to get a better backup catcher but in lieu of that how would you handle him how often would you give him a break if you could even persuade him to take one if it were me i would try to find a way to get him to adopt a religion that requires a sabbath i don't care if that's you know if he wants to become an orthodox jew a seventh day adventist just one day a week you are not allowed to to enter the ballpark because it's what three years in a row his second and a half Stats have you know been pretty terrible, and I mean the problem is he loves to play every day. Everybody loves him; they want to make him happy. And like you said, the backups have not been uh, have not been the kind of guys you want to get on the field any more than necessary. But I think it's 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 a problem. I mean the guys he's not Johnny Bench, and they want to play him like he's Johnny Bench. And even Johnny Bench wasn't Johnny Bench after the age of like thirty or thirty one. And you know Perez is under contract for the next five years, so. They might. I don't think it, it it takes a PhD to figure out that you need to give him a little bit more rest. I mean, in was it 2014? I believe he 
caught he, he caught more innings than any catcher in a single season counting the playoffs yeah. in the history of baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he, he, his workload dropped by eight games in 2015 and three more games last year, but I would like to see what he could do, you know, starting no more than about 135 games behind the plate. I think that's a, a good round number. That's basically five out of every six games, right? Which basically means one day off a week and there's 26 or 27 weeks in a season. So one day off one game off a week, um, would be ideal. Yeah. Drew Butera. Drew Butera, you know, quietly had one of the most shocking offensive seasons of anybody last year because he actually didn't suck. I mean, he slugged 480 mm-hmm. from a guy who literally in what, seven, six previous major league seasons, his career high in batting average was 197 or 198. <laughs> he never hit 200. I don't, it's amazing to me. And then he actually hit, and, you know, the question is, did they actually do something? I mean, it's such a outlier that it almost makes you think that he figured something out. But I wouldn't mind having him start 27 games a year. The Royals gave him a two-year contract. So, obviously, they must feel comfortable with him behind the plate. But I do think that they've got to figure out a way. Because I think Salvador Perez, when healthy and rested, is a better hitter than he has shown um, the last two or three years. I mean, earlier in his career, he didn't play every day. And what's a better hitter? Reading an article that I actually wrote 13 months ago, the headline is Royals win again, comma, keep Alex Gordon. Mm-hmm. Uh, within that within that post, I used the words, but there are two things. One, Gordon shouldn't hit the wall all of a sudden, implying that, well, at <sighs> least Alex Gordon should age well and gracefully. And then Alex Gordon last year had uh, his worst offensive season since, it looks like, 2010. Uh, he had his worst wins above replacement since 2010, his worst everything since 2010. Alex Gordon is now 33 years old, injured last year, struck out a ton more than he ever has before. Mm-hmm. What is the prognosis for Alex Gordon's short-term future? I, you know, it's a, I, I wish I had a good answer for you. The obvious, you know, the, 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 the first sort of defense that I see from, from the Royals, from journalists, from the fans, everybody, is, well, you know, he broke his wrist, you know, in colliding with Mike Moustakis. The same play that blew out Mike Mistakis' knee in a game in Chicago late in May, and that's why he was terrible. Which sounds like a wonderful theory, and I wish it. I hope that's actually the case. But what that kind of misses is he played in 42 games before that, and in those 42 games, he actually hit slightly worse than he did when he came back. He had a he had 211 with a 319 on base percentage, 331 slugging, and the the, the big thing, as you mentioned, I mean, okay, 42 games of the, is not enough for those offensive rates maybe to to stabilize, but he struck out 50 times in 166 plate appearances in those 42 games. I mean, the story before he got hurt was Alex Gordon is striking out at a dramatically higher rate than he really ever has before. It was a, it's a 30% strikeout rate. I don't think he had ever struck out in more than a quarter of his plate appearances before. I mean, the year before he was around 22, 23%. So that's why I am, I am, more nervous than I think a lot of Royals fans are who just uh, chalk it up to that injury. You know, he is 33 years old. Now, before last season, if there was any 33-year-old in the organization, if not in, in in baseball, that I would have expected to age gracefully, it is the guy who literally hasn't had, you know, an ounce of refined sugar in his diet in about 15 years. <laughs> uh, he's, you know, his diet is legendary. His workout regimen is legendary. That's the kind of guy you expect to age gracefully. He didn't do that last year, and nobody knows if that's going to continue to be the case. I am optimistic he will bounce back a little because I believe in regression. But will he get back to the point where he's an offensive asset? I mean, his uh, you know his OPS plus last year was 84. The year before was 119. Will he at least get to 100? I would hope so. That won't make him a star. Won't even make him average. Although with his defense, maybe he'll be close to average. But that's sort of necessary. And again, I can't, I cannot, until I know what happens with his strikeout rate, I can't answer it. But that's, if there's one indicator I'm going to be watching on, uh, on this team in April, it is going to be the, the, the swing and miss and strikeout metrics for Alex Gordon. Because to me, that I think is going to tell a big part of the story. Alex Gordon's uh, WRC plus last year to the opposite field was three. 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 <laughs> nice. <laughs> Thought there was another number coming after that. But no. <laughs> All right. So give us the usual prediction. How many wins will the Royals have in 2017? And if you wouldn't mind an additional prediction, how many of these major free agents will they extend and or resign? Right. Well, I'll start with that question. I think that's easier. I think the answer to that is one. Okay. I think they're going, they have, there's enough, but in the budget, there's enough will there. 
the question is who that one will be. The the publicity has certainly been that for Eric Hosmer. Mm-hmm. You know, Scott Boris has talked about, you know, I don't know if he planted the story or whatever, but there's been talk. The Royals are talking with Hosmer and he's expressed a willingness. It's a great PR move. I personally do not, if I, if I had one guy on this, uh, of, of their impending free agents to resign, it would not be Eric Hosmer, at least until he proves that he can stop hitting ground balls at a rate almost unseen in the history of first baseman. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and mind you, that is possible. I mean, I think that's one of the stories, uh, you know, one of the maybe less important, but certainly not unimportant uh, explanations for this power surge we've seen is, you know, in baseball as a whole is the number of players who have recrafted, retooled their swings to elevate. Right. I, mean, I know Brandon Moss was actually quoted in the, the, the star, story in the Kansas City Star about how he retooled his swing. And maybe there's hope that that'll rub off on Hosmer. I'm trying to remember who are the guys. Was it Jason Wirth? There are a couple of guys around baseball who fam- sort of somewhat famously, you know, kind of sold out for power the last couple of years and and, uh, and it paid off. So I'm, I wouldn't put it past Eric Hosmer that he has the ability to do that. Um, and frankly, his stagnation as a hitter uh, is one of the more baffling things about the, the team over the last few years. I mean, a guy who comes up at the age of 21, you know, not only a, a you know top five draft pick and top 10 prospect, but at the age of 21 and, and has a 118 OPS plus, which five years later, he's worse than that. And it's almost his best year of his career is at age 21. Jeff, was it you who did a, an article for Fangraphs talking about how like the aging curve as we know it basically doesn't exist anymore? I guarantee you that was the other Jeff. Jeff Zimmerman. Yeah, maybe it was Jeff Yeah, Zimmerman. he does the aging curves. One of the Jeffs. Okay. Well, you know, this idea, we historically, the you know, peak players, uh, hitters peak at age 27. And, you know, I, I think you wrote an article in the last year or so about how that really isn't the case, that basically hitters seem to be peaking at the, the moment they enter the major leagues and they don't get better after that. Uh, and I think Eric Hosmer is a, is a significant data point for that. And I don't know if it's a fluke or if there's something systemic in the sense that because high school players, you know, all these area code games and all these showcases allow hitters maybe to develop against better velocity, better breaking pitches at such a young age that maybe they're just able to, the, the, the natural development process that happens in a, in a player's early and mid twenties now is happening in their late teens and early twenties. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is, but Eric Hosmer, you know, the fact that he hasn't developed is frustrating and I don't know if he's capable. I mean, he's, he's shown streaks like that. I mean, last year in the first two months of the season, I want to say at the end of, um, into May, he was hitting like 330, looking for all the world like Will Clark, the Will Clark that I thought, yeah, he had 330 with a 553 slug at the end of May, and then it was sub-replacement level after that. So, Well, yeah, but then Alex Gordon ran into Mike Moustakas, so that's yes, probably exactly. what made Hosmer worth. <laughs> well, hey, they, these guys are tight, you know. They, they, <laughs> I'm sure it was emotionally devastating for them. Um, so, I mean, look, I'm not going to rule it out that he can do that, but I wouldn't put, I would certainly like to see that happen before I put a lot of money in him. The guy I'd like to see them sign is Mike Moustakas. I mean, to me, he, even more than Hosmer, is probably the key to the Royals being a, a contender this year in that, you know, what he did in 2015, completely re- remaking his swing to be an opposite field hitter and basically increasing his batting average by 70 points without without losing power was, was just amazing. Is is kind of you know extremely rare and extremely important for the team, and then last year he came back and kind of consolidated those gains by starting to hit for power again without losing his contact rate. I mean, last year Mike Moustakas, before he got hurt, he had the highest ISO of his career, the lowest strikeout rate of his career, and the highest walk rate of his career. It was only a, a month and a half worth of games, but those are those are three very good things, and I'm very curious to see now that he's recovered from his torn ACL. If he can maintain that, I, I think if he can combine the power surge he showed last year with the, the otherwise stellar performance he had in 2015, that's a guy I would love to see extended for five or six years. The reports are the Royals, the same reports that said the Royals were talking with Hosmer said they were not talking with Mike Moustakas and Lorenzo King. And that to me, I'm not going to say they're making a mistake. That's not what I would do. I would I would focus on Moustakas. You add the defensive value in there. It's not that hard to find a first baseman. It is harder to find a third baseman. So I would like to see them sign Moustakas. Um, and then beyond that, you mentioned the the winning uh, the, the their win loss record. I am going with 86 wins right now, which are you know, relative to pretty much every yeah, projection out there is <laughs> extremely optimistic. But I mean, look, uh, you know, you could you could you could be negative and say Pakota's like projecting what 71 wins or something like that. That's the the negative Nancy way of looking at it. The optimist view is that Pakota is projecting them to be one win less than they were in 2015. 
<laughs> so hey, if you look at it from that perspective, that's that's pretty good. You know, look, the, the projection systems have never gotten the Royals right. You know, even last year, you know, extremely disappointing season by the standards of like a World Series, you know, d- defending champions. They still outprojected projection uh, at least per quota by I think five wins. So. I do think, you know, and look, you're talking to the one of the uh, least objective people uh, on the planet about the Royals, but I, I actually do not think 86 wins is ridiculous. I think they will be in wild card contention, but it's basically going to be they're either going to win like that. If that's an expected value, that means basically they're either going to win like 89 or 90, or they're going to be, you know, under 500 at the deadline, in which case they're going to trade off everybody and they're going to end up with like 71 wins. So, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, there's a very long tail on the, on the, on the low end mm-hmm. because if things go bad, things will go very bad, but with a purpose, I hope, because that's the one way to rejuvenate this team after next year uh, more quickly is to trade Hosmer, Moustakis, King, whoever they don't sign to a long-term deal will probably be sent packing at the deadline. And I would expect the team to tank. So like if they don't win 80, I, it's almost impossible for for me to see them winning between like 79 and 83 because if they get to that point they're going to be so far out of it that they're just going to you know sell, sell at the deadline mm-hmm. all right well you can read ranny from time to time at the ringer you can find him on twitter at jazerly and if you're in the chicago area you can have him examine your moles so thank you you can Randy. do that and i <laughs> i appreciate you guys bringing me on as my uh, impersonation of a sports writer somehow continues to fool people uh well into my retirement but i appreciate being brought on all right thanks Randy. always good talking to you thank you Good talking to you guys. Take care. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Donald Adamic, Jonathan Sieg, Russell Baxley, Paul Ferraro, and Nicholas Perry. Thank you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Keep your questions coming via email at podcast at fangraphs.com and via the Patreon messaging system. On our next episode, we'll be previewing the angels in the Diamondbacks. Until then, we hope you have a wonderful weekend and we'll talk to you next week. Because the weekend, I get to see the girl.